words to which I would call your attention are found in Matthew chapter 8. We'll be looking uh, particularly at verses 23 through 27, a story that you probably remember from Sunday school, vacation Bible school, that of Jesus calming the sea. This is God's word. Let's uh, give attention to it now. Matthew chapter 8, 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging that this word will have no value for us if you do not work in and through it by your Holy Spirit. There are, there are many types of soil gathered in this room this morning. Some from whom Satan will attempt to snatch the seed away. Others who are uh, thin soil, rocky soil, who will take this word for a moment. Others who will receive it with joy and then the moment affliction arises outside of these four walls, they will forget everything they've heard. We ask, Father, that you would make us fertile soil by the work of your Holy Spirit to receive this word and to bring forth the fruit of it to the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Uh, something interesting happens every time a storm rolls through at the McCullough household. You see, we we have a little brown and white dog that hates thunder. And the moment that a clap of thunder happens outside of our home, she goes into panic mode. And the tongue comes out and the panting begins and she begins pacing through the house. If you're lying in the bed, she'll try to get in the bed with you, literally trying to get inside your body. Uh, anything that she can do to get away from this storm that is coming, it, it inflicts her with the severest form of fear. I, this has gone on for seven years. We have a little trick. I'll take a spoonful of peanut butter and insert a pill of Benadryl, and that will calm her down just a little bit. But you and I have fear responses as well, don't we? We often define our fears as phobias. Some of you may claim to have arachnophobia. Uh, Anytime the smallest little spider comes around, you are headed in the opposite direction. Some of you have a fear of germs. Maybe you have a fear of heights. But we use this term phobia, don't we, to sort of define something about us. We use the term to suggest that there's a lack of control. I can't help it that I am afraid. My dog certainly doesn't seem to be able to help it. If you have arachnophobia, therefore you would say, I have an uncontrollable fear of spiders. But is this a Christian perspective of fear? 
What is the Christian's relationship to fear? Have you ever thought about that? What is the Christian's relationship to fear? In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, we read these words. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. There, similar, there are similar statements like this in the book of Deuteronomy five times. Fear the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. You see, this is an expression of, of the Christian's devotion to God Most High, that we fear Him. And it was His will for His people that their fear should have a central focus, never to be distracted. The Christian's fear is centered on God Himself. We read in Ecclesiastes the very last verse. These are the very last words in the book of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter... All has been heard. In other words, I've made all of my arguments. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. God's will is that you should fear one thing only. Him. As we look at this scene, this calming of the storm, we, we see a very terrifying situation. Mountainous waves, winds that are shaking a boat almost to pieces. And what it teaches us is something very simple, that perfect humanity exercises a perfect fear, a perfect faith in God. Perfect humanity exercises perfect faith in God and never exchanges that faith for a fear of the creation. That is an important principle. Perfect humanity exercises a perfect faith in God and never ever exchanges that faith for a fear of creation. Remember, when we get to Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, this has been a long day. I've said that a few times now. But Jesus, remember, he, he traveled about two miles south. He preached the sermon. He, then they traveled back to the north, and he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And people were crushing down upon that house. They are asking him to heal all of their diseases. They're bringing all of these demon-possessed people and say, and Jesus, with a word, cast them all out. And he went from there to the seaside commanding his disciples to leave. And then he, he still is addressing people. They're coming up to him moment by mo moment, making requests to him. Do this for me. Do this for me. Do this for me. And, and he's seemingly not turning anyone away. Everything they're asking for him to do, he's doing for them. Well, here, Jesus is finally departing. They get into the boat to go to the other side to thin the crowd out, as it were. And suddenly, a storm comes upon them. They are met by a tempest. Now, as we consider this story, the first thing that we notice is that it is not God's will for you to fear death. It is not God's will for you to fear death. Now, I changed that point. 
Originally, I made the point this way. The fear of death is a sin. And that, that point will hold true, and I will demonstrate it to you in the words that Jesus says to these disciples. It is not God's will for you to fear death. Let's look at this scene again, beginning in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. They are devoted to Christ. He is their master. They've called him Lord. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Matthew, at this point, he... He, he, he uses his words to paint a picture for you of this storm that comes upon them. The word storm, by the way, everywhere else in the New Testament is translated as an earthquake. So it's not an earthquake, it is a storm, but we get the picture of these experienced fishermen in this boat, and it, this, the storm is a violent one, such that it is shaking the boat. It is shuddering in the winds. And these swells are coming up on, on um, the lake, such that it's, it's pitching them up on one side, and the, the bow of the boat will come over the wave and then slap down on the other side of that wave. It is very violent. So violent that the water is lapping over the gunnels of the boat. Matthew takes his time to describe this to you. He wants you to understand this scene so that when you look at these disciples and they're coming to Christ in verse 25, going to him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing, you can say, that's me. Of course they're afraid. I mean, who wouldn't be afraid in that situation where the wave perhaps is so high that you can't see the other side of it? This is the perfect storm. It brings out a fear response in the most seasoned men. They've been on this lake before. But now they're crying out for Christ to save them. And we want to take a moment to look at what Jesus said to them. In verse 26, he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Remember, I was preaching through this passage, but from Mark's perspective a few years back. And as I was doing the translation work, it really struck me what Jesus said to them. You see, the fear of death in these disciples, it demonstrates cowardice. And when Jesus, awakened by the disciples and looks up at them, and there they are, all hovered around him, asking for him, pleading with him to save them. He looks at them and he says, why are you cowards? That's the literal translation of the term. Why are you cowards? This word that Jesus uses to describe the nature of their being, cowardly men, occurs in only a couple of other places in Scripture. And I want you to look at it with me. Turn over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. <clears throat> For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see, God 
has not given a spirit of fear. So this spirit, that's the same term that, uh, that Jesus used when he confronted the disciples there, when he chastised them. He says, why are you afraid? Why are you being cowards? This is the same word. You see, that fear that they are experiencing, even in that moment, even at the bottom of the swell, as the waves are coming over, that sensation, that emotion that they were experiencing did not come from God. Look over with me at at one other place, Revelation chapter 21. In verse 8. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Let's pick up reading in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, same word, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see there that that here... Um, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lumps together this cowardliness, this overwhelming fear. He lumps it together with sexual immorality, with murderers, with liars and sorcerers and idolaters. And so it's for this reason that we have to conclude that this emotion expressed in this way is not a godly one. It doesn't come from God and it is listed as a terrible sin in John's revelation. Where does it come from? Why do people experience this overwhelming fear, this, this, this sense of fear that locks me up tight? Like my dog panting and pacing back and forth in the house. Where does it come from? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 8. Jesus diagnoses it. And he said to them, Why are you cowards, and then this direct address, you of little faith? Here Jesus makes a connection between faith and fear. He makes a connection between faith and fear. Remember, Jesus has used this term, uh, little faith, before in Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking about, when he says to us, stop being anxious He says, you of little faith. You're not trusting in the Lord your God. Stop being anxious. So it is associated with sinful anxiety and sinful concern in Matthew 6, verse 25. A lack of faith is associated with doubting. So we're shown here in this picture that these disciples, overcome by sin, from their sinful nature, it is generating within them a sinful fear. This fear does not come from righteousness. This passage is challenging you and me to reassess our fear nature. You see, we we have this response. We say, well, this is just natural. Anybody in this situation would would naturally be fearful. But Jesus is looking at them and he says, stop being afraid. Stop being cowards. This is not righteous. We're tempted to say the disciples fear the storm. That's perfectly natural. They couldn't see the other side of the wave. Their their ship is being rocked to pieces. In our 
therapeutic culture, we are tempted to rebuke Jesus, aren't we? Aren't you being insensitive? Come on, fella. I mean, who wouldn't be afraid of lightning and thunder and wind? And you're on, on, in the depths of the, of the lake there. If, you're, if your ship goes over, you're dead. Show a little care. Show a little empathy to these men. But this passage teaches us that their fear response was sinful. Jesus rebukes them because it wasn't out of their control. It was affected by sin. And this is something that you and I have to, have to take in as we think about the effects of the fall. The fall did not just affect your behavior. You're not just sinful in your actions or, or make a slip every now and then with your tongue. But what we're being reminded of in this passage is that the corruption and corrosion of sin goes all the way down to the inmost part of your being. Your emotions are corrupted by sin. So, for instance, you love things that you ought not to love. There are people that make a big living by putting clips on YouTube of skateboarders breaking their head open when they miss the edge of the halfpipe. And we laugh at that. Many years ago, I remember that uh, as in, in high school, I think it was, some of my buddies and I, we got together and we went to the Blockbuster video. This is when we rented movies in, at the Blockbuster or movie gallery or whatever it is. And we thought that we were doing something very illicit because there was a series of videos that was supposedly banned in 46 countries that we snuck home and we watched, and, and I could only watch a portion of it because it was clips of people dying. But you see, some people take joy in that. You, you love things that you shouldn't love. You, you take joy in the hurt of other people at times, and you shouldn't. That's a sinful emotion. You get fearful as well over things that shouldn't make you afraid. And, and this passage is showing it is not God's will for you to fear the creation more than the creator. That's not his will for you. Christ has not given his blood to leave you in slavery to any sort of fear. And so many of our debilitating person, what we would call personality defects, come from this sinful fear that so easily entangles our hearts and minds. You think, I have no choice. This is just who I am. Jesus is saying to you, no, I died for that too. If I could give you an illustration, it would be like this. Your life is kind of like a bucket of rocks. The bucket is your life, and the rocks are your faith. And everywhere that there is a gap between those rocks, fear is going to fill it in. It will ensnare you and entangle you. So your emotions, including fear, need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You need Him to go down deep, to get under the fingernails, as it were, of your being and transform your mind and your heart. So how do we overcome sinful fear? How do I get over this, which seems to me so natural? Well, one, confess it as sin to the Lord. That's step one. Some of us have never done that before. 
You lay in the bed and you worry and you've got all these things and you're not up pacing, but you are in your spirit and you're thinking about all of these things that are causing you distress. Uh, maybe there's a hurricane bearing down on your house and you can, you can hear the wind or you can hear the, the tornado coming like a freight train toward your house and you're overcome with fear. The first step is to confess that fear to the Lord as sin. To ask God to sanctify your emotions by His Holy Spirit and enable you to stop thinking of your emotions as an uncontrollable source of bondage. Christ died to set you free. Repent. Begin today. Here's, that's the put off part. Asking God to forgive you. To put off this sinful fear that encumbers you. Here's the put on part. What do I exchange that for? You need to transfer your fear to an almighty God. Don't view the world like an atheist. Why, how, how could Jesus possibly expect these disciples not to be afraid in the midst of this storm? Well, here's one thing. They might could have remembered that the size of the waves, waves, the power of the wind, and the time of day were all directed by an almighty and a sovereign God. Those waves were not chaos. It wasn't a tumult driven by nature, the whims of Mother Nature. It was driven by God, determined by God. The height of the waves were determined by God. The strength of the waves of the wind was determined by God. Understand that God has determined the day of your birth and the day of your death. And those are incontrovertible dates. So there is a real sense in which there is nothing you can do to extend your life or to shorten it. Because God has determined it. You cannot die before God has determined to take you. Now, some would say, well, Pastor, this gives us an excuse to live recklessly, doesn't it? I'm not going to take two Advil, I'm going to take 12. I can't die before the Lord wills me. No. This is not permission to live recklessly. This is not permission not to go to the doctor. That in and of itself would be a violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Jesus himself did not throw him down to test the Lord when the devil tempted him. This is not permission to live recklessly. It is a challenge to live every moment in the light of the sovereignty of an almighty God. I think this has been one of the effects of COVID. We have lived through a season in which God has revealed that many in the church have a deistic or an atheistic worldview. Our response was not to fear God first, to pray and seek his protection, and then to go on in obedience to him. But for some, for some, even obedience to God was interrupted by a pandemic. You remember what God said? Fear me and keep my commands. You and I have to acknowledge that by nature we are a sinfully fearful people, acknowledging it to God and asking his forgiveness. But the second thing that we learn in this passage 
is that the antidote to sinful fear is faith. The antidote to sinful fear is faith. Now, in in some sense, this whole passage centers on a question. Uh, Go back to the text with me and look at Matthew 8, 27. And the men marveled, or they wondered, saying amongst themselves, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obeyed him? Now, Matthew would have been the kind of TV show writer that you hate because every single episode seems to leave you on a cliffhanger. And you're just, you have to watch the next one and the next one and the next one to get the point. You see, we, we just studied this passage last week in which these uh, inquirers came up to Christ and they said, I will go with you wherever you want to go. And then the next one came up to him and said, uh, Lord, actually I need to hang back a little bit. And Matthew doesn't tell us what happened. We're asking, what happened to these men? And here, at this episode, we see that the disciples are asking this question, what sort of man is this? Or another way to put it would be, what kind of a man is he? What kind of a man is he? And Matthew doesn't tell us the answer. And you know why he's doing that? Because you have to answer the question. You see, he's lifting his face up from the page right now, and he's looking at you. And he's saying to you, What kind of man is he? Well, first of all, he's a man. Jesus' humanity is displayed in his sleep. We've already talked about the fact that this was a very long day. A long day of ministry. And we see the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ in that he got down into that boat and he went to sleep. Mark records that he was sleeping in the bow of the boat on a cushion. So we see that Christ was a man. But the question that the disciples didn't ask, the one that you and I need to ask is this. How on earth did that man stay asleep when that boat was being shaken to pieces and waves were coming over the gunnels? Who can stay asleep in that kind of a circumstance? Well, I think there are a few answers. Our first answer might be, well, he was so tired. He was so tired from that day of ministry that nothing could wake him up. Really? Have you ever been so tired that someone could take a bucket of water and splash it onto your face and you could stay asleep and do that repeatedly over and over and over? That's not the answer. It's not fatigue. Well, the other possible answer is this. Well, he's, he's God, isn't he? He could stay asleep because he's God. He's empowered by by God. Well, I think the response to that is pretty simple. Why did he need to sleep in the first place if that's the answer? It's not because he's so tired. And it isn't because he was divine. The answer is this. Jesus could sleep because he had perfect faith and confidence in God most high. Listen to a few passages of scripture with me. Psalm chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Psalm 3, 5 to 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Psalm 4, 8. In peace, 
I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Do you see, in each of these psalms, there's this repeated expression of confidence in the Lord and its connection to the sound sleep of the believer. Leviticus 26, verse 6, gives us a promise. I will give peace in the land. Listen, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. Job 11, 18 and 19. And you will feel secure. Because there is hope, you will look around and take your rest and security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. Proverbs 3, 21 to 24. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Over and over and over in God's word, we have this connection between fear and sleep. Here's what you need to take away from this. Why could Jesus sleep in the midst of this storm? The reason that Jesus could sleep is because unlike you and those disciples, he was not corrupted by Adam's sin. He is a perfect man. And he could lie down in the midst of that storm and he could close his eyes and go to sleep and stay asleep because he is the man that you should be. He is perfect humanity and you need to see this because when you read passages like God is conforming you into the image of Christ here's the image his work in you is to banish fear so far as it was from Christ Christ had the heart that was stayed on God his father and whenever you read that passage listen Whenever you read that passage in Philippians 4, which says, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, this is a picture of that peace. We see in this boat a picture of Christ's perfect humanity, but we also see, answering this question, what kind of a man is he? Well, he was perfectly human, truly human, and truly divine. Christ's deity was displayed in his power. Going back now to Matthew 8, 26. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, just as he had those demons. Just as he healed the centurion's servant's son. He rebuked the winds and the sea, and that great tumult was replaced by a great calm. The winds and the sea obey this man. Psalm 65, verses 5 to 8, we read this. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains 
being girded with might, listen, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. This is a sign of his power. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32. Listen to this one. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord Yahweh in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Listen, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. You see, the picture that Psalm uh, 103 is, picture, is painting for us is not only is Yahweh the one who calms the sea, He is also the one who by the word of His command creates the uproar. He is the one who not only gives you peace, He is the one who creates the circumstance through which you need to ask Him for peace. And this is the kind of faith that strengthens the believer. The answer to the disciples' question then is this. Christ Jesus is truly man such that His body required rest at the end of a long day of ministry. And Christ Jesus is truly God such that He could stand in the boat and demand the obedience of wind and waves. In the beginning, listen, the world was formless and void. We get this picture of Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You remember that? At Christ's command, the Spirit transformed that chaotic mass into an orderly, beautiful temple to the glory of God. Here... Filled with the Spirit beyond measure, Christ exercised that same power to still these seas. But there's one other thing that you need to see in this. Go back with me to Matthew 8, verse 26. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Now, this is not a good translation of the verb. This is a passive verb. So it should be translated this way. Then he was raised. And here's what you need to notice from that. The wind and the seas, the waves, the breakers, the waters did not rouse Christ. But their prayers did. Even when you come to Him and you are trembling in the midst of the storm and you are beset by sinful fear, have this confidence 
that Christ, your Savior, hears your prayers even when you come to him with the tiniest of faith, when your hands are trembling and your mind is is as chaotic as your circumstance, when you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, your prayers rouse him. And his first work is to change not your circumstances, beloved, His first work is to change the one who calls upon him. His work is not to calm the sea. His first work is not to calm your circumstances. His first work is to calm your heart by imparting to you faith that subdues fear. He addressed the disciples first. And his second work, if he wills it, will be to change your circumstances. Never forget, the first work, you, are the most important in his eyes. Perfect humanity, perfect faith, casts out fear. We see Christ in this passage as a perfect man. The man who is unpolluted by Adam's sin. The one who exercises perfect faith in God, even in the midst of a storm, And the one into whose image you and I are being transformed. Know this. That sin has affected every facet of your being. And when Christ redeems you, the Spirit of God begins a work of transformation. A work of transformation that goes down into the very depths of your soul. That transforms the very essence of your being. Bringing you from death to life. As we confessed, it is a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. As God sanctifies you, your thoughts and your behaviors are made godly. But he also transforms your emotions from selfish, sinful ones to emotions that are Christ-like. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we remember that on this side of glory, we are always going to be beset by the emotions of the natural man. We are Adam's descendants. We are his children. And we are afflicted by sin. But we come before you this morning seeing now, seeing now in Christ Jesus the people that you Want us to be. Fill us, O Lord, with faith. Let our bucket, the bucket of our lives, be so filled with faith that there is no room for fear. That we trust you completely and implicitly. Please do this. By the work of your Spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. A closing hymn. Our hymn of response is hymn number 108, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. Let's all stand together as we sing hymn number 108.